Welcome to another episode here at the Midnight Founders Podcast. We're so excited to be with you today. This is AJ Rounds from Rev Road and Jake McCarg from CB Vault. Here at the Midnight Founders Podcast, we focus on telling behind the scenes stories for what makes a successful entrepreneur. We're excited for another week. Here we go. All right. We're excited to be here today with Nate Sanders from Artifact. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to chat with both of you. Yeah, you got the Utah awesome. Jazz hat on, so that's that's the, a good sign. The yeah. old school one. I love yes. those colors. That's yeah. like back in my heyday. I know. Yeah. I'm, Makes I'm, us feel nostalgic. Yeah. Back when the Jazz were, well, the they Jazz, were, right? They've still been good, okay. but like, it's nothing like the Carl Malone, John Stockton that era. That is very I true. Danny Ainge. And, yeah. Uh, I'm a Penitent Nuggets uh, fan, so I grew up in Colorado. Oh, cool. And uh, I have some good friends like Ken Free and... Uh, folks like that here locally that have converted me over to the ways of the jazz over the last 10 years since I've lived here. So. Yeah, so you probably hated the jazz back then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, your arch enemies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, lo- local kind of mountain rivals, right? Yeah. Um, probably not the worst rivalry that uh, the jazz have had over the last 25 years. But, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be a jazz fan. I'm excited for... The next couple of years could be really fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're poised to do pretty to well. Happens. Yeah. All right, let's get your 30-second elevator pitch on what you're working on with Artifact. Yeah, for sure. So Artifact is predictive CX, and we use AI to be able to help you analyze everything that your customers say and do. So we centralize every single customer conversation across the whole customer journey. It could be reviews, help desk tickets, surveys, anything like that. And you use AI to be able to help you actually analyze and quantify what's being said by your customers. Wow. Love that it's AI. I mean, that's yeah. where everything's going, right? Yeah. So tell us more about how you got into that specifically. That's really cool. Cool space. Yeah. I mean, I was telling Jake a little bit, uh, the fact that we, we pivoted into what we're currently doing as a company. But I, I think thematically speaking, um, we're very passionate about the space based on the fact that we've all been SaaS practitioners our entire careers um, across the founding team. Specifically myself, I've been in product management and product design. So voice of the customer is something that I've had to be able to utilize my entire career, just to make decisions around how do we reach product market fit? What do we change about this product or this feature? So every shop I've ever been, I've gone through the process of standing up practices, tools, processes to be able to understand what are customers saying? How do we conduct our own primary research? How do we make sure we're doing departmental interface with like sales team, success, support to be able to use that as input into what we do with our products? And it's a very time-consuming process. Um, a really quick example of that is when I was at Pluralsight, we... Uh, Love Pluralsight. Shout out to them, right? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. It's great. Um, one, of, one of my my colleagues who at the time was my design partner and then he moved into product management as well, Mike Baird, who's the head of product at Pura now. Uh, he and I were going around to a lot of the different product teams, and we were um, coaching and hosting these synthesis workshops. So people would have either customer interviews or some sort of unstructured qualitative data that they wanted us to be able to help synthesize and just ensuring that that practice became more like more of an evidence-based decision-making practice across the organization. So we would run these two-day activities. You would be in a big glass room with 15 people that are paid $150,000 plus, and you'd end up with like 2,000 sticky notes all over the wall of what customers have been saying. And then you use that as a snapshot to go make a decision. Um, it's expensive, but it's incredibly effective. Um, and that, that was, I would say, 
the impetus for what we're doing with Artifact is this watching this very high value, high effort, um, high expense activity drive a lot of really important strate uh, strategic decision making and wanting that to be prevalent across the entire business. So you're you're making it easier to do that or digitizing that 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 activity what what exactly are you doing to to, to assist assist it okay assist with that yeah it, it depends on I would say data practices in a lot of different ways so do you target a specific industry yes yeah so we're, we're pretty focused right now on SaaS companies as well as direct to consumer and retail companies okay and the, the common factor there is one sophistication around the customer journey and then two do, they usually just have high volume of you know in number of customers so there's more data more qualification for us to be able to chat with those folks. Um, but if, if you think about this in like two different veins, you have all of your unstructured qualitative data, your conversations with your customers that just get elicited naturally through you doing business. Mm -hmm. So that could be reviews, sales calls, support tickets, all your call center data, the MPS results that you get, things like that. And then you have primary research. So concerted designed efforts to go learn something specific from a customer. You interview them, you do surveys, quantitative surveys, something to learn from that customer. Both of those practices create a ton of qualitative data that lives in these silos. So generally, sales calls live within the sales organization. Support tickets live within the support organization and so forth. Mm. So Artifact centralizes all of it. Cross-pollination so, yeah, and things. So we get all that information in the same spot. We resolve it back to the exact same customer and account, and then uh, we use AI. And we had to, it was a hard product to build. We built it for almost two and a half years to be able to make sense and actually make that information actionable. Whereas, I, if any of you have ever used like text analytics products throughout your career, um, I did before starting Artifact, and you get these things that are called engrams, which are one, two, or three word keywords. And it's almost impossible to make them actionable. You can't take that information and say, here's how I'm going to go like set my company strategy off of this. So for, for CB, it might be something like um, like uh, my, my wire form broken, like wire form broken or, or like you know deposit late. It's like, what, what do you do with that information? How right. do you use that to actually set strategy? Whereas in Artifact, we've created this really unique topic model using AI that would be um, you know, every single wire form um, fails when I set the actual wire amount, right? <laughs> like very clear, very actionable. It's not uh, ambiguous around what you can go do about it. It aligns to specific teams. So we, yeah, cool. cross-pollination, centralization, quantification, all the things you need to actually make that information actionable. That's awesome. Yeah, we're excited. So post-revenue and growing and scaling, is that where you're at as yeah. a company? Post revenue, early revenue. So, we raised uh, we raised a the, the nomenclature around rounds are is very funny nowadays. But we raised a pre seed round in 2020, so May of 2020. Nice, perfect timing. In May. <laughs> yeah, I have I have war all virtual about that. PTSD. I can <laughs> yeah. see it. You know. yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, in in March 1st of 2020, we actually had our term sheet signed, and we had 92 percent of that round allocated. And it took me about 90 days just to get the final 8% actually put together. Because the world was falling apart. Totally, yeah. yeah. Nobody would take phone calls, yeah. demos, anything like, you know, venture capitalists were shut up. 
same with the rest of us for at least 60, you know, 70 days. Um, so we raised that round in 2020, um, and we ra- and we used that to be able to build quite a bit of product, raised another round in uh, December 2021, and then we started commercializing the product last year. So early revenue, um, next milestone that we're pushing towards that will be significant for us um, you know, over the next six to nine months will be $2 million in ARR. Good for you. So push, pushing hard, still lots of executional risk, like I was telling Jake a little bit earlier. That's great. So <clears throat> let's take it back uh, to early, like yeah. earlier in your life. Did yeah. you always know you were going to be an entrepreneur? Is this something that kind of you kind of fell into or take us through that journey? I, I, I think so. Um, I wouldn't say it was my career path, but I was always very interested in entrepreneurship. Um, so during, uh, like during grade school, you know, I would watch my older brothers, um, starting businesses, working, things like that. And so I was like, you know, doing the very trite, you know, lemonade stand to try and make money. And then like later in life, it was something it's okay. Yeah. Right? yeah. We hear that life, a lot on the podcast. Actually. <laughs> lemonade stands. Yeah. Um, and then later in life, uh, it was, um, you know, helping my brother start a landscaping business and just watching him evolve through that and what that looked like and, um, you know, being his employee number one and watching the lessons learned there, um, starting like a, a lifestyle clothing brand for skaters and like selling it on consignment and nice. using my brother's direct-to-garment print shop to be able to actually, you know, lower the margin so I could actually do it in an affordable way as a kid who knew nothing about it. And um, that evolved, I think, just progressively into knowing that I would do things that are entrepreneurial. But um, I don't I don't know that I had, like, the bug for tech entrepreneurship um, until probably 2010, 2011. Hmm. Where did that come from? Did you just see what was happening here along, you know, the corridor and thought, that's, that's what yeah. I want to do? Or Certainly part of it, yeah. I... I I fell in love with graphic design in high school. Um, like I was, you know, the one designing the t-shirts and doing things like that, which then led to like, well, what if I could create a website to actually do this, which led me to digital design. And um, throughout that process, um, I think I, I gained a pretty core competency in just design and design thinking, um, visual design, things like that. And uh I think in 2010, 2011, there was a lot of buzz around like design co-founders and the fact that the role of product design and user experience design was very evolutionary and fast growing, being fast, you know, adopted in a, uh, I think, more sophisticated way across startups. Um, And so I saw that and was very interested in that. And I think just thought to myself that like this would be a very important core competency for a co-founder of like a tech company to be able to have. So that mixed with just like me being exposed to the tech world that was certainly evolving here in Utah. And, uh, you know, I would say a lot of the boon of like, you know, a bull market in 2010 and 2011 and what those markers were and what that meant to new startups. Um, yeah, it was kind of a, a nice medley of things that got me exposed to that pretty quickly. Very cool. So then um, when this opportunity, by the way, did you go to, College here, the university at one of these? I did. I didn't finish. So I went to... uh, True founder. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. That's great. Yeah, I went to Utah Valley University um, in 2008 um, and 
thought I was going to do aviation there. Um, I have two older brothers that are commercial pilots, and um, both of them also do entrepreneurial things, and I thought that was going to be my way. Um, I, I, I still have a very strong passion for aviation, and um, one of my brothers is getting certified on you know the new G7 that's rolling out very slowly to very high <laughs> net worth individuals, and um, so like I geek out on that stuff, but that was, that was my desired, uh, career path at the time was aviation served an LDS mission. Um, aviation went through some very difficult times through 2009, 2011. Um, and even before that, frankly, um, it's a perfect storm of just, uh, the recession as well as the fact that you had, um, uh, just aviation practices and budgets being cut throughout the air force. And so it was just less prevalent, less budget. Um, the industry was suffering, and, uh, yeah, I, I think just had some counsel to maybe maybe follow the other passion, which is entrepreneurship. And I leaned into that pretty heavily when I get back from my mission and went to LDS Business College uh, because I was told they had a strong uh, set of operators running their entrepreneurship program, which uh, proved to be the case. Uh, there's really a lot of smart folks that aren't necessarily tech founders, but that understood entrepreneurship and were repeat serial founders and learned a lot there and then dropped out and worked for a business professor actually right out of uh, dropping out of college. So you might not fly a G7, cool. but maybe you'll own a G7 at some point. Yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> that kind of how it works, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that'd I be would cool. love that. So talk about your founding team. I know you've mentioned them a couple of times, like who's on the team and, and what roles do they have? Yeah, so Caleb Bartholomew and Trey Davis are my two co-founders. And Caleb is my technical co-founder. And Trey is our operational co-founder. He's our COO and is just wearing all the hats. Like, you know, he's head like of people, head mode. of finance, head of biz ops, head of all the things. Um, and they're awesome. Um, we we actually, when I was at LDS Business College and very early in my career, we tried to start something, uh, all three of us, at that point. And uh, if you're familiar with, like, Wompley, um, mm-hmm. They do like digital loyalty card linked offers like digital loyalty. And uh, we had an idea that was similar to that. Um, we called Frequenter. And at the time, there's only, and this was in 2012. Um, and so we, we worked together, got to know each other because we actually met each other on our missions, came back and decided we'd try and start something together. And uh, yeah, I, I would say we knew nothing about building software. We knew nothing about like customer development or building products or anything like that. And uh, yeah, we gave it our dangdest. But uh, at the time, Yodely was the only bank fiat aggregator. So the whole premise of this app that we were building is you had to connect a debit card or a credit card, kind of like you do with, uh, I think it's called Rocket Money now. It was called Mint before. So you, you connect your debit card, you track where you might spend your money at these different merchants, and we would give you cash back if you hit a certain threshold. And at the time, the only bank for you aggregator that existed was Yodely. First of all, the, the platform fee was like $15,000 a year. Mm. It was $0.30 cents per connected card per uh, account every single month. So if you had three debit cards like connected, it would be like $0.90 cents a user. The unit economics never really made sense of the business, especially when you're taking money off the redemption of like trying to do a cash back reward. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we learned a lot, shut it down. Um, Those are the best learnings, huh? Yeah, yeah. And, and three days later, I got a call from a guy named Zach Parrott, who is the co-founder of Plaid. And he was like, hey, we're starting this company. 
<laughs> and it's going to be cheaper and it's easier to use and the API is clean. Um, so, well, it's too late. Um, but he, yeah, uh, they've built a monster business in a very short amount of time and it fixed all the things that we couldn't figure out with this other uh, solution. Um, so anyways, uh, worked together well and we explored options and ideas throughout the years but never really found something that we were all really excited to quit our day jobs on and then that changed in kind of late 2018, 2019 and we all started talking again about maybe we go pursue this this thing that we're all talking about. That's cool that you've been able to stick with these guys uh, even with like through the first business that didn't yeah. succeed and now into a second uh, venture together yeah. and with some gaps in between. Uh, I think that's probably pretty rare. Um, what advice do you have for other people out there when they're looking for a co-founder? I, I think uh, I, I've been asked this question a few times. I think my general advice now is you just have to work with someone to actually know. I, I would not worry about all the fine details of what that means until you know that you work really well with someone. I wouldn't talk about equity yet. I wouldn't talk about incorporation yet. I, I would just start exploring and building um, and you can learn a lot about how you work with somebody. Um, and if, and if you need to like iron out some of those logistical legal details that, you know, maybe to set boundary lines in the, in the earliest parts, fine, but you cannot know what it is like to actually run a company with someone until you're actually working with them. It's, huh. it's, it's, uh, if, if you're just trying to do it based on personality alone, it's darts. That's good. That's good advice. I mean, you hear a lot of the opposite, right? Be careful and, you know, have everything documented before you even do anything, right? But there's a lot of wisdom in what you just said. Yeah. I and, like that. Yeah, th th there's there's probably, I think, a more metered and sophisticated way to, to give that advice than I'm giving it. But I, I, uh, I have a good friend, Wes Eames, who's also a serial entrepreneur here in, in Provo. Um, Shout out to Wes, yeah, right? Wes is great. Wes uh -huh. is awesome. He runs a company called after.com that does... Uh, Afterlife, post-life planning, so cremation and things like that. Um, it is a company that does that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Uh, well, yeah, they they, they kind of own the entire front end and planning aspect of that. Mm. Yeah. Um, he he actually shared some some of that same advice to me early on um, when I don't think I had cemented the idea of starting another company or starting something with uh, the two co-founders that I have, even though we had worked well together and explored this. Um, he, he had expressed that to me a few times. It just, you have to work with someone to really know. And he had had some interesting experiences there. And, um, that's, that's the kind of the policy we took at the earliest stages. So let's, let's go jam on something together. Let's build it and let's see if there's something there, there. Cool. Mm -hmm. Where you're in AI and, and, you know, you're a SaaS product yourself, how, I mean, it's really important to stay cutting edge. I mean, you gotta be on the very, very leading edge of anything that's coming out. So what's your strategy or how are you doing that to make sure that you're not getting behind? Yeah. Um, I read, I'm, I'm an infovore. Um, I read voraciously, uh, whether that is blogs or research science papers that come out around AI. Um, so one, I just, I can consume an enormous amount of information around the space. Um, and I try and stay up to date on it. Um, Two, I, I think like as far as staying up to date with all that information, there, there's kind of two classes of what this actually looks like. There are products 
that are already vertically integrated as a vertical SaaS offering, generally speaking, that are attaching or slapping on AI. I think uh, there are some people who feel that those companies have the advantage because they have uh, install bases built to sell their existing customers to, and they can add this stuff really easily by adding an API. I, I think that like is as far from the truth as you can possibly get. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that those companies are just going to become crushed by people that think about the problem space that these vertically integrated software companies do from the ground up. So is Word just going to add on like a, you know, AI assistant to be able to become the dominant word processing, you know, application forever? Maybe. I think it's more likely that somebody rethinks the entire experience of like drafting, uh, you know, and, and creating um, these documents together um, what it even means to be able to have a document like do we need this you know eight and a half by 11 concept anymore and what does that mean I, I think those are the types of companies that have a much stronger chance of being successful over the next 10 to 15 years so you, you have these two classes of you know what that means I think uh, if you're not building a team that natively understands and has competencies around these things around, um, whether it is machine learning, um, you know, the data pipelines and production uh, pipelines around what it takes to be able to build an AI product. If, if you're just attaching this to an existing product, um, I, I don't know that it matters for you to be able to keep up because you're just going to be consuming stuff that is mainstream in the first place. So by the time you th- like your team could even consume it or use it, um, it it's something that is already evolved into maturity itself anyway. Just cataloging and yeah. accessing information. Yeah, any any vertically integrated software suite right now that is adding on like OpenAI to their existing software, I mean, like, they, they should have started three years ago if they wanted to become like an AI native product, right? So I, I, I the jury is certainly out, like how this is going to evolve. Um, but I think I think my answer to like, to founders or folks that are thinking about this would be like, if you're not starting natively from the ground up and rethinking the problem and have a founding team that has competencies around this, I don't know that matters because you're going to be using mainstream AI in in the first place. Mm -hmm. Things are already adopted, established, well-documented, you know, good APIs, et cetera. Good clarification. Yeah. Does that help? (laughs) I like that. Mm -hmm. It's helpful. So for somebody that's not reading blogs about AI, <laughs> yeah. what advice would you or have? Voraciously reading everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, what advice would you have for like them to just at least dip their toe in and have an yeah. understanding of what's going on in the AI space right now? Man. Because um, otherwise they're going to get left behind, right? Yeah. I, I think my answer is like a little meta because I feel like one of the best ways to learn about AI is to use ChatGPT right now. Um, just try it. Just start <laughs> using it, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think. first of all, understanding how you learn um, is something I became really passionate about after being at a couple ed tech companies. But understanding how you learn and how you can progress into concepts is really important, especially if you're going to, like, you know, start a company. Um, but I, I would I would use ChatGPT. I would ask all the questions. I would, you know, explore and just add lots of follow-ups and, explore these different concepts and not be afraid to be wrong and know that you have this kind of infinitely patient um, wizard in front of you that can just answer questions at a rate that like, you know, a human probably wouldn't have the patience or tolerance to be able to do with you. So I think it's a really great way to be able to learn. Um, 
the other way I would say uh, is like there, there are lots of introductory books and um, the way that I commonly suggest people step into this is by following the same evolution that AI essentially took, um, especially what like what deep learning is now. So like learn about statistics um, from there, learn about core machine learning um, techniques, um, which gives you all of the kind of basic fundamentals that you would need to be able to understand the state of AI today. So if you can understand some of those basic, uh, I think, data and statistical thinking tools um, and how to be able to approach data in that way, it's going to be able to give you a really strong base to be able to think through unsupervised and supervised machine learning, which is essentially the current state of affairs uh, throughout AI. So I, I would I would step through it in that way, start with statistics, understand some of those core basic first principles around how those things work, move into machine learning, learn about those principles, and uh, it'll, it'll cascade nicely for you to be able to just build the solid base of what's happening. Um, yeah, books... ChatGBT, reach out to me. I know lots of founders <laughs> that love to nice. teach folks as well. Yeah, I'm happy to. I do. I do this all the time, actually, and just go to lunch and do brain dumps of all the things I think about around AI. It sounds mm. like we need to schedule a lunch. Uh huh. <laughs> I'm definitely on that other side of the <laughs> spectrum where it's like, yeah, I've used ChatGPT a couple times, but that's about as far as I've immersed myself into the AI space. Yeah. Well, and then I mean, along those lines, then. Uh, how would you answer the concern that, you know, you hear periodically where, I mean, we've even had folks visit and present mm -hmm. at the office where they're like, AI could be the downfall of our entire civilization, right? They're, they're very skeptical and concerned about that. So yeah. what is your response to that? I, I think the risk is real. Um, the timeline is not as aggressive as I think a lot of people think. Ironically, I would say if you if you go on LinkedIn and you look at a lot of the AI doomers, it is people who fundamentally do not understand AI. They think they understand AI because they, they I don't know, they hit the open AI point once or twice and think they know now. They watch um, Terminator in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, th it's going to turn this. <laughs> that, that was like rather frustrating in like I would say the April, May, June time frame is you had a lot of people in our community, especially like even in Utah, that took to, you know, took to the socials and were very emphatic about like the, the risk. And, and, I, and I know they don't fundamentally understand how any of these things work. Yeah, not very educated about it. Were they? Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a really good example of this um, is when you're when you're training uh, any sort of machine learning model, there's a concept called an objective function. That objective function is essentially what is the model actually trying to accomplish or optimize for. And most people think of uh, the way that these models work is they think it's going to use a bunch of probabilities to try and determine what to do. But in actuality, what it's saying is, here's what I need to do. What are all the probabilities of how I can do that one thing? Does that make sense, that nuance? It, the, the, the wide fan isn't the options of what it could do, it's how it could do that one particular thing. And when you realize that, you start to be able to think about like the doom and gloom a lot differently. So uh, three months ago, we had an Air Force general saying that a uh, an unmanned aerial vehicle um, you know, broke its objective function and killed the pilot. 
anyone who knew anything about how machine learning worked read that article and said, no, <laughs> like there's this, something going on. This absolutely did not happen. Um, this like, this is bogus. And uh, it turns out within nine hours, we found out it was bogus and he backtracked on everything he had said. And it's because it's not how these models work. It's fundamentally just not how these things work. Um, now, in order for AI to get really scary, um, you probably have to take that objective function and rather than using it exclusively in training, you probably have to use it in inference, which means when you're actually trying to get an answer from ChatGPT or running a model for its prediction, most likely for us to be able to get to really autonomous self-governing agents, like there has to be some version of that planning or that reasoning happening at inference time rather than only in a pre-training step. And when those architectures start to be able to afford that, which none do today, um, that's when I am going to become gradually more concerned about like what this looks like. Yeah. Um, so there's there's lots of complexity that um, I think, frankly, like even I don't understand, uh, and I think we probably don't have time to go over. But like, as far as risk goes, I think there is real risk. I don't think we need to be uh, worried that we have any sort of architecture or capability to reach that level of concern yet. Um, I think the governance that already exists around entities, people, and the laws that protect corporate organizations and people alike are the same things that should be applied today. I, I don't know that we need to reinvent the wheel there. Um, and I think it's also important to remember that like agency is the only thing that really matters here. <laughs> um, as far as trusting larger companies to be able to make sure they are aligned, um, that they're being thoughtful about these things. I have a high degree of trust in organizations like OpenAI, Anthropic, DeepMind, uh, they they put an enormous amount of thought into AI alignment. The reason GPT-4 is better is not just because the architecture is bigger and more capable. It's also because it's more aligned to our interests as humans. So I, I, think, I think there are smart people that have high degrees of ethics that are doing everything they can to be able to uh, think about these risks in an appropriate way. Um, so, yeah, it's a couple of my rambles for you i love AI it risk. that's actually really good to hear some of those things so thank you yeah, yeah so uh i know you mentioned that you're after um kind of retail customers yeah. SaaS companies what does a what does a target customer look like who who would you love to talk to uh who yeah, who, who would you love about? yeah who would you get excited about yeah feel free um, to call them out on the on the air too Oh, yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some folks here locally that we, we love to, to speak with. Um, I, I would say, as far as like ICP goes, it, what we've learned over the last couple of years is, first of all, one of the complexities that we have is it has to be who's the most passionate about the voice of the customer inside the organization. That is usually a head of product or head of CX strategy. It can be the head of customer success, and it can be, in some cases, like a head of customer support, if you have a really, I would say, unsophisticated organization um, who isn't thinking about like creating new value. Um, if that person has to be the strongest voice for how to use that across the business, um, like bless them um, because they're they're probably 
fighting a lot of battles as it is. <laughs> <laughs> so th those that's one of the, the complexities we have. But it's usually product leaders and heads of CX strategy that we spend quite a bit of time on as far as our customer base goes. Um, and then, yeah, like we're, right now, um, you know, we have some really awesome customers here locally, like Pura, um, that, you know, creates this IoT Scent device. Um, they're a product team that uses us to be able to understand what the customer is saying so they can influence, you know, future product decisions. Um, you know, we, we work with a lot of um, larger organizations like Fortune 500 companies that are large retail brands. Um, so it spans. Um, but yeah, there's a short list of people I'd want to talk to you, like, like Nate Randall at Gab. <laughs> I need to get a hold of that guy. <laughs> uh, Nate, reach out to him right now. Let's, let's, go <laughs> let's, let's chat. So yeah, that, that's usually what it looks like is those two teams uh, make up our ICP and we spend a lot of time with teams especially cool yeah very good well i mean along those lines what uh where can people reach you how do they get a hold of you um man i i you can email me i'm like, happy to give it over to, over the line you can email me at nate at artifact.io i'm always willing to chat especially with people that are aspiring entrepreneurs i spend I spend several hours a month just just meeting with folks that are trying to figure it's good you do that. That'll come back to you yeah, tenfold so. for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, ho I hope they uh, they get the value uh, <laughs> out of it in some way and go build something. And then you're pretty active on LinkedIn as well. Yeah. I've noticed so. Yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, whatever, whatever works, and happy to happy to get together with folks. But yeah. Great. What What's next for Artifact? Two million in ARR. Yeah, that's coming up. That's be that's exciting. the next next big milestone. Um, I think my answer would have been different like nine months ago. Um, but right now it's probably profitability. Um, okay. And, and, and being able to choose our own destiny as far as future financing and the growth and aggressiveness of that growth for the company. Um, so we want to build something that's very large. Um, I don't have like an immediate desire to just go sell the company. Um, I want to build you know, a very large tech company that uh, solves these very deep pain points. And uh, so, yeah, we're excited to be able to on our own terms over the next few years great good luck with it you're Thanks. gonna you're gonna do well i mean i can see that you've got the passion and and the team around you and the knowledge base so yeah. you're on your way yeah thank you appreciate it yeah what what most concerns you about this journey what's the hurdle that you're most concerned about yeah um people um finding the right people yeah like all the variables of that it's the team building. It's the stewardship of having employees when, you know, when you're running a business. It's the thought of what that means in the worst case and best case scenarios and how to be able to develop those people, see potential in folks. Like, that, that, that is probably the hardest part for, for me. Um, like, the, the financing is, you know, ranges from hard to fun depending on whatever the environment is, the, the product development's stuff I love doing every single day. Um, the stuff that keeps me up at night is like how to treat people right and find the right people. And all those dimensions that fit uh, around you know, building the company. Hmm. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Uh, it's been fun. The end, if there's anything else that we didn't talk about that you'd like to talk about or any advice you'd like to share for other entrepreneurs, the floor is yours. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, 
maybe maybe one last thing uh, would be reach out to uh, folks that are ahead of you. Uh, I've learned a lot doing that. Um, I think I had advice early on to not do that, to only like be warm introduced to fellow founders or things like that. And I've found a lot of success from just reaching out and trying to learn from folks and getting them on the calendar and going to lunch and things like that. So I'm happy to do that with folks. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of value that comes from not being afraid to ask for you know, a quick meeting it's networking around yeah cool yeah thanks again thank Nate, you it's yeah. been fun to have you yeah good to meet both of you thanks for having me the midnight founders podcast is a podcast about entrepreneurship that is hosted by cb vault and rev road cb vault is the entrepreneur arm of central bank and rev road is a venture services firm where companies come to grow Thanks for listening to us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is AJ and Jake signing out.